The Disability Report with Karen Key. It's been four years since we started doing the Disability Report, and in that time, I've met and interviewed some quite remarkable people. So, on the show this evening, I'd like to remind you of some of them from this past year, and hopefully they'll spur us on to even greater heights this coming year. I first met Mr. Polani Zia at the 80th anniversary celebrations of LOFOB, the League of Friends of the Blind. He was one of the guest speakers that day, and he spoke about how he had lost his sight two years ago, how he initially battled to come to terms with his loss, and how he's now making progress with the help of LOFOB to get himself back to work. He's one of the most inspirational people I've had the pleasure to meet. And then I'll be joined by Rochelle Peterson, founder of Little People of South Africa, about her journey with her son who was born with achondroplasia, or dwarfism. Jenna Lowe is an 18-year-old who last year was diagnosed with primary pulmonary hypertension. Well, to be diagnosed with a terminal illness at 17 is quite hectic, and now, aged 18, it has become her mission to raise awareness for the disease so that others can be diagnosed earlier and have a better chance at prolonging their life. And then I'll be chatting with Cassie Chambers, Operations Director at SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, about bipolar disorder. And a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening, take a look at the Facebook page, Disability on SAFM. Or you can email me directly on disability at safm.co.za. So that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. The Disability Report with Karen Key. Well, imagine being diagnosed with a terminal illness at the age of 17. Jenna Lowe is now an 18-year-old who last year was diagnosed with primary pulmonary hypertension and it's become her mission to raise awareness of the disease so that others can be diagnosed earlier and have a better chance at prolonging their life. Jenna, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. I'm glad that you've given me the opportunity to be here. So, Jenna, tell us about your journey because this all started in 2011 and you were a very fit teenager did lots of sport and dancing and everything else, and suddenly you found yourself becoming very breathless. Yes, it started um, first just when I was exerting myself or engaged in exercise, and I thought I was just sort of losing fitness and that I should work harder and get back to, you know, um, my normal level, and it didn't start off as anything too alarming, but then throughout the months, and it started going quicker and quicker, uh, it started to deteriorate until eventually just doing normal everyday activities such as taking a shower or tying a shoelace or walking from the car to the front door became a strain and, um, and I, was, I was incredibly breathless but also incredibly fatigued so we went to um, various physicians, we went to my GP and then we went to um, all sorts of experts and what the general consensus that they reached was that um, firstly there was nothing wrong with me um, then a couple months later, we went again, and eventually I was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with asthma, which is very, very common with pulmonary hypertension. Um, and I was on asthma medication for about half a year, which made absolutely no difference. And in that time, I worsened substantially until eventually um, in January last year, I was diagnosed at the age of um, 17 with primary pulmonary hypertension, um, which is very different to asthma, which is what I was originally diagnosed with, in that asthma, you cannot take in the right amount of air, whereas primary pulmonary hypertension, you can take in the air, but your um, body cannot diffuse oxygen out of it. So the, the issue is more in the blood vessels, and it's basically characterized by um, severe constriction in the blood vessels of the lungs so it puts strain on the right side of your heart and um, generally leads to right heart failure but it also means that your oxygen saturation is always too low and drops further with exercise so that's what I was experiencing um, when people were telling me that it was psychosomatic and that it was all in my head. Isn't it wonderful when they tell you that it's just <laughs> you are feeling terrible and they're telling you no you must be making this up. Yeah, they told me I was too stressed and I was a perfectionist and mm. doing it to myself, which <laughs> was very frustrating. But mm. it, it basically, it highlights, this is why I'm so, um, so particularly attached to this idea of raising awareness, because it happened to me and it happens to so many other people that their breathlessness is just not noticed until it's too late or they are misdiagnosed with things such as asthma 
and um, it, it really can, it makes such a difference because if you're diagnosed early with pulmonary hypertension, you can get the right treatment and your life can be substantially prolonged. If you're diagnosed late, it can sometimes be too late for effective treatment and then, you know, um, it's a degenerative disease so your life can be substantially shortened. The problem with calling it primary pulmonary hypertension is a lot of people get confused and think it's high blood pressure because the hypertension part, but it's not mm. that at all. It only affects the lungs in this case, not yes. the entire body. Only the lungs, um, which puts immense strain on the heart um, and specifically the right side of the heart, which pumps blood to the lungs. But the rest of the body, yes, the blood pressure should be normal. Sometimes it can even be low. Um, so it's not to be confused with that. It's specifically the tightening of the blood vessels in the lungs. This is more common in women than in men, I believe. Yes, but it can. I mean, that's, it, it doesn't only affect women. It is slightly more common in women of childbearing age, which is unfortunate mm. <laughs> um, because it means that you cannot have children. So that's another thing that many people with pH have to face. But it can strike anyone, regardless of age or gender. I know some babies that have it, some people that were diagnosed with it at nine months old, and then some people who are very elderly and also diagnosed with it. So the actual diagnosis came about after you had something called a nuclear VQ scan. Yes. That, um, interestingly enough, that scan, um, one could call it the first step in my diagnosis, but the first step in the correct diagnosis was actually when the doctor, he put an oximeter on my finger and he made me walk down the passage. And the fact that my oxygen saturation dropped when I was walking was indicative of the fact that it wasn't asthma and it wasn't something to do with the air coming in, but it was something to do with an oxygen diffusion issue. So to confirm that, I had the ventilation perfusion scan which showed that my ventilation was perfect, almost overdeveloped because of the months of asthma medication, but the perfusion levels in my lungs were much lower. Is, there nothing, is it not possible possibly to have a lung transplant? Would that have any impact on the condition? It is, um, and that's generally the final step for the condition. So the way that they treat it at the moment is that you, you start off with oral medications, um, there unfortunately aren't really available in South Africa. We have Revatio, which is a form of Sildenafil, which um, I know many South African patients are on, and often blood thinners such as warfarin. And then there are drugs overseas such as one that I'm on called Byzantan. And then you move on eventually to IV treatments, which is much more drastic, but can also be much more effective. And again, that's only available overseas and then eventually um, you're usually a binatural lung transplant you can't do a single lung and then that will give you obviously however many years of life you can expect from that so the cost must be phenomenal though jenna to be able to import all this medication from overseas absolutely massive and it's also it's a mission to get the approval and to get um the the right importing pharmacists and so forth um it's really it's i think it's horrific that south african companies and um and that overseas pharmaceutical companies haven't registered the ph drugs here i think it's because there's not sufficient market for there to be a profit but i have a serious moral issue with that because the treatment really makes a difference between life and death so um yes it's it's firstly really difficult to import the drugs. I'm the only person that I know of that has imported Byzantan, although we're trying to open up that pathway for others. Um, but also it's, it's really hard to find the money. It's um, really, really expensive. <laughs> and so are the oxygen machines, which assist with the condition, and the mobility scooter, which I'm, I use, um, in place of a wheelchair because I can't walk very far. Um, and then IV treatment, which is hopefully the next step for me and is something we're investigating, has also never been brought in and proves to be 
more of a challenge than any of the oral medications, which is saying something. Now, you talked about the fact that there were not that many people in this country with this condition, which is possibly why the medication isn't coming into the country. Do you mm. know how many people in South Africa, more or less, have this condition? Do you have any idea? I mean, that I know of, about 60, but I suspect it is way more because of the diagnosis issue. Mm. I mean, in Australia, where they have expertise in pH centers, it takes, on average, three and a half years to diagnose pH. Wow. So in South Africa, where we lack a lot of expertise and we have no pH specialists or anyone that, um, that it really specifically deals with the condition, um, it's much worse. And I suspect that many people uh, misdiagnosed or not diagnosed for their entire lives. Now, if people listening are, are thinking, gosh, well, maybe that's what's wrong with me and no one could come up with a, you know, a good enough diagnosis, yes. you've got a website. It's jennalow.org. It's J-E-N-N-A-L-O-W-E, jennalow.org. Yes. They can go onto your website. They can read your blog. They can read your story, and they can post a message. I'm sure you would only be too happy to help them with information. Yes, of course, and there's an email address on there um, which they can contact us on. There's also, um, I'm now on the committee of PH South Africa, and they also have a website www.phsa.co.za um, which gives more information as well and that website also aims to compile a database of PH sufferers in South Africa so if any PH sufferers are listening they can also go register themselves there but really I would be happy to help and my entire medical journey is on my website as well as um, what I think is a much more accessible um, description of pH than you would find on many academic websites. Well, I was reading through that and I thought, gosh, I even understand this. So, yes, it is. <laughs> <It's> definitely. <laughs> yeah, we tried to demystify the medical terms a little bit because they were quite daunting for us when I first got diagnosed. So, so part of this of your, on your website as well, you've also got the Genelo Trust where you are raising funds for your treatment. And um, one of the things you're doing is with your sister, with Kirsty. Yes. With Christy, yes, um, you've Christy done a song. And I mm produced a song. She has the voice of an angel and a heart of gold and she is just the most incredible supportive sister and she basically sings a song that I wrote and we collaborated with the local South African band Good Luck and the song's called I Need More Time which refers to the degenerative nature of the condition because it's a critical illness and um, yeah so that's that's been a source of funding for me but also a source of um, awareness and a way to build awareness for the condition but the song is available for download on iTunes and it's also available for download via SMS if people SMS 33333 um, and they SMS time to that number if anyone would like to do so. What you didn't mention though Jenna was that you sang it at Newlands at the rugby stadium for the Stormers. Yeah Christy did she was incredible I mean she, she's only, um, well, she was 15 at the time. She turned 16 about a week ago. And, yeah, she sang it at the rugby stadium. She sang it at the Table of Peace and Unity for all our politicians and religious leaders. And she sung it at various um, other events. She sang it at the Reach for a Dream Gala in Johannesburg. Um, and she's really <laughs> starting to gain support. Um, and we've had a lot of support from 94.5 KFM in playing the song. Um, and just generally, we're hoping to get more momentum with radio stations around the Cape, just playing the song and getting it, um, getting it recognized. <laughs> one last thing. I think one of the big things with something like this, though, is the support of your family. And from what I've read on your website and on your blog, you have incredible support. You've mentioned your sister, but your mom and dad as well. Oh, they are just beyond incredible. Um, my parents donate so much of their time to medical research, to collaborating with doctors around the globe, and just to connecting with pH giants and, and, and really um, amazing specialists worldwide to get the care that I need. They will not spare any expense. They're just the most incredible people, and they have given so much of their time and effort to help me get what I need. Um, but they're also just emotionally such a support for me, my whole family. They're incredible, and my friends in school. And I've really just felt through this whole um, horrible thing that's happened to me that the community has been the one thing which has really got me through. And it's just, I feel so much 
gratitude for everyone who's helped me with that. And Jenna, after matric? Hopefully UCT. <laughs> oh, wow. What are you going to study? I would like to study uh, BSOC Sci, History, Psychology and Philosophy. Gosh, you're so giving... I have conditional acceptance for that. So very, what I do. Very busy time you've got to hit for, hit for yourself next year with all those subjects. Yeah, and it, it, it is very tiring. Um, finding the time to study and etc. when I just kind of want to sleep much of the time, but that is unfortunately the reality. <laughs> well, Jenna, I have to thank you so much for your time this evening. I wish you all the best for those exams. Thank you so much for having me. Only a pleasure, and uh, good luck with your treatment. Wish Christy all the best with her musical career. It sounds like she's off to a good start with that. Thank you. I think so, too. <laughs> and uh, hopefully um, there'll be people listening that you've helped this evening that will possibly have now realized possibly what the problem is and, and pop off to the doctor tomorrow and go and get themselves diagnosed mm, correctly. I sincerely hope so. It's mm. really worth the effort. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me on the on the show this evening. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, Jenna. Good night to you. Good night. Jenna Lowe is an 18-year-old with primary pulmonary hypertension, and if you'd like to find out more, if you'd like to assist in any way, you can take a look at her website. It's www.jennalowe.org. That's J-E-N-N-A. L-O-W-E dot org and she said there's now a new website for PH, it's www.phsa.co.za it's a pulmonary hypertension of South Africa phsa.co.za The Disability Report with Karen Key well, Rochelle Peterson's son was born with dwarfism and along the way she realised that there were other parents out there, like her, who needed support and information while they too were on the same journey with children born with dwarfism. So in 2008 she started the organisation Little People of South Africa and she joins me now. Rochelle, good evening, welcome to the show. Hi Karen, thanks for having me. So tell us, first of all, I think start at the beginning Rochelle, this started with your son, tell us your journey with him. Um, well, it's been a 13-year journey so far. Um, Joshua was born in 2000, um, kind of unplanned pregnancy, um, seven years after my eldest son. So, um, yeah, uh, but I, Joshua's di- um, condition wasn't diagnosed. Uh, it was only diagnosed or confirmed after birth, so I wasn't even aware I was carrying this dwarf baby. So um, naturally, it was quite a shock for me to discover that my baby wasn't um, what I, what I expected. So yeah, for me, it was uh, basically new beginnings, learning a lot of new things about Joshua's condition, um, which wasn't easy because um, well, at first I had to deal with a lot of issues within myself, you know, because you expect this baby to look this way and a certain way, and as we call it, normal. And all of a sudden, there's this baby that does look anything but normal, you know, in their way, in in their physical appearance. So within myself, I had to learn to accept the fact that I gave birth to a child that looked different than my previous child, and um, also with the, the the fears that I faced: Will my child be accepted? What am I going to tell my family? How am I going to explain the condition? What is the condition? How am I going to live with it? And how is he going to live with it? How am I going to help him cope in society? Um, Also in full knowing well that him looking different is going to be targeted, you know, um, by certain people. He's always going to draw stares. He's, He's going to stand out. So, um, yes, um, it's been a long journey. It's been a lonely journey also because at that time dwarfism to me wasn't a known condition and it wasn't something that people spoke about. Like, you know, now you have HIV AIDS and people speak about that. And um, But dwarfism wasn't a condition people spoke about. So I had to actually force myself to actually... Do some research on the internet and thank God for um, for the internet. And that's where I found a lot of information on how to raise Joshua. How and I learned that his developmental milestones were different than children or average high children. So um, there also I had to take special care of him. I needed him to uh, undergo medical tests, further testing. And, um, yeah, I had to also find within myself and I had to find other parents who had 
um, a child like Joshua so that I can also gain the necessary support and so that I can share my feelings because you don't you can't really share how you feel um, with somebody else who that hasn't gone through what you've gone through so um, yeah basically um, I had the, the support of my friends and my family that was great in my church also and it was actually through the encouragement that I started the group Little People of South Africa. Rochelle, what exactly is dwarfism for people who don't know exactly the medical condition itself? Because you mentioned that Joshua has to, had, to, had to undergo medical tests. Obviously, there were still medical issues related to this. Just explain a little bit about what the condition is. Yeah, um, there are different types of dwarfism. There's about over 200 types of dwarfism. And our children in our group have this um, achondroplasia. That's the type of dwarfism they have. And that's caused by an inheritance of a mutated gene, or it's inherited actually, and it's genetic. Um, but in most cases, the parents that I have met, the gene mutated spontaneously. So not one of our parents carried the gene, but the gene mutated with, uh, I, I think they said it comes through the sperm of the father. So there's, um, there's something that that changes. So at the end, your baby then, <laughs> um, your baby then is not um, average height, but then it's a skeletal dysplasia also, where the bones, the cartilage of the the bones, it's affected. So the bones grow slower than normal. So that's what causes the short stature. Now, what sort of medical issues would Joshua have encountered as well, Rochelle? Well, basically, uh, for things to check out, if at birth, normally that you have to check their head because the head circumference grows quite quickly, and they could um, develop hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain, and they have um, otis media, the inner ear infection, those because the, the tubes are quite narrow there, so there's always a blockage of the, the fluid in the ear. And um, the basic milestones, like their back is curved because the, 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 the base of the spine is actually flat. So they will have the curvature of the back, so you need to watch out for back support when, they, when they're young. And there's, um, you can't expect them to sit up straight as an average high child before a certain age. And Joshua had, I think Joshua was about two and a half, nearly three before he started to walk. He actually didn't crawl, eh? he actually slid on his stomach, kind of. He slid himself forward on his stomach. So they don't um, crawl like an average baby crawls. So those are the things that we had to look out for, his head circumference. And I had to look out for the fact that, oh, yes, while he sleeps, they call it sleep apnea. Oh, right, they stop breathing. They stop breathing, yeah. So you need to regulate their breathing, check their breathing. You can sometimes become paranoid, mm. but uh, the most thing is the care, especially the first two years, is very, very, very critical. So this is the time now. I mean, you didn't have the luxury back in the day when Joshua was, was very little, but parents now that are joining your support group now will have the luxury, if, for want of a better word, of parents like yourself who can actually give them advice on what to do, as you say, in those first two years, which are critical, and you didn't really have that similar kind of support back then. Exactly. And I mean, it's scary because here you're sitting with a child and you don't know much. And there's, there is, the medical uh, information is there. It's on, it's, it's on the net. But just yourself in that situation, you, you, you're afraid. You think you're going to make a mistake, you know. You have to stop yourself from comparing your child to another child. So it's a journey that's unique only to yourself. And that that was hectic because there's there's okay these doctors you can phone but they are not readily available when should something happen. So yeah, I'm glad that I can be of assistance to parents now that has a, a question that maybe I was that I also dealt with, you know. And um, Joshua's had two major operations already at the Red Cross Hospital here in Cape Town. And another parent's child also went underwent the same operation, and I could just encourage her, you know, to say this is what they do and look out for this and look out for that. 
Because you must be an absolute yes. blessing to these mothers, Rochelle. I mean, because you're giving them what you didn't, what you never had. Yeah, I'm hoping so. Uh, I'm hope. I'm really hoping so. Um, some of our, our parents are keen to talk, and some of our parents are not keen to talk. And uh, some of our parents have been blessed in a sense that their children don't have to undergo major surgery. And some um, are then in that position where they are faced with the news, oh, your child has got major developmental issues, like they pick it up normally the f- between the first and the second year. They pick it up all at the Red Cross Hospital where we attend the genetic clinic. So those those things then, you know, those things can can, can rock your boat, kind of. How's Joshua but, doing now, Rochelle? Well, Joshua is an active 13-year-old boy. <laughs> Testosterone flying Teenage years. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's active. He likes to play soccer. He loves to swim. I wish I can have him swim more because that actually helps him keep his weight down. They do have a problem with obesity because they have an appetite of, of average height children, but their bones grow slower. So obviously they grow slower. So there's, there's always this constant fight of you need to eat so much because you know you're not growing as fast as Johnny Boy or as Mary, you know, that mm. type of thing. Mm. And, but Joshua had also a rocky start at school, which, um, and he has ADHD, which actually makes it worse because he couldn't um, focus much at school. So that plus the fact that he, and he had, yet it was a long time before he accepted, accepted himself, actually. That's for also the other, once, once a child like Joshua realizes that they are different, it must be quite difficult for them to, as you say, come to terms with who they are. Yes. Yes, because there's this constant staring, there's this constant bickering, there's this constant name-calling, there's this constant, you know, he's always out there. And that caused him actually, and he was bullied, and that caused him to actually become a bully. Oh, no. And now now is is that better now? Yeah, no, thank God it's better because now intervention and... Um, therapy and counseling and a lot of talk and a lot of reassurance and affirmation and confirmation of who he is help him to understand that he doesn't need to become that bully that he was subjected to. You see, see well, something like we're talking now on, on the show, Rochelle, hopefully there are people listening um, that can maybe talk to their children about how you deal with people who are not quite the same as you. And they are just people like you, but they might not look like you, but they are just people and you have to be good to everybody. I mean, you know, especially with little children, you need to, as a parent, need to start talking to your children and explaining these things to them. It'll just make everybody's life a whole lot better. I agree fully, Karen, um, because I had to address Joshua's uh, school friends, the parents. And, and I had to request of them, this is why Joshua grows so slow. And this is what I would like you to tell your child, that although Joshua looks different, that Joshua shouldn't be treated differently. Mm. You know, they should just know that he is just small, that's all. And he may look different, but he has the same heart. He has feelings. He has, he's excited about things. He gets angry at things. He gets sad at certain things. So he's just a person like all of us. Now, Rochelle, I'm going to give out the, your, your Facebook uh, page uh, thing and also your email address. But just to let people know that I'm sure if people all over the country, they don't have to be based in Cape Town, can join up with your, your association. Yeah, sure, sure. They are most welcome. Um, we do have an, um, a Gmail account if they would like to email us. It's littlepeopleofsouthafrica at gmail.com all lowercase, and uh, then we've got a Facebook group going called Little People of South Africa. And you'll be able, they'll be able to find uh, all lots of information on there as well, and if they want to get in touch yes. with you, they can do so via those. Rochelle, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to catch up with you again in the future, but thank you so much for your time this evening. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Corin, and for helping us raise awareness of dwarfism. Only a pleasure, Rochelle. Thank you for your time. Good night to you. Rochelle, Peterson, you. Is the, good, Rochelle Peterson is the founder of Little People of South Africa. And to find out more, take a look at their Facebook page, Little People of South Africa, or you can email them on littlepeopleofsouthafrica at gmail.com. The Disability Report with Karen Key. 
LOFOB, which is League of Friends of the Blind, is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year. And over the 80 years, they have done incredible work and they continue to do remarkable work in the field of early childhood development, in sport, and assisting people who are either born without their sight or unfortunately lose the sight as they grow older. They also have a wonderful program where they assist people like my next guest, Mr. Polani Zia, and he is here to do some rehabilitation work with LOFOB in Cape Town. He's originally from the Eastern Cape and he's joining me in the studio this evening. Mr. Zia, good evening. Welcome to the studio and welcome to the show. Good evening, Karan, and uh, good evening to listeners too, and thank you for having me in your show. Now, I was at a function a while ago where they were doing the whole sort of celebration of the 80th anniversary and you were one of the guest speakers that morning. And I was so touched by what you were talking about and how you are accepting what has happened to you in such a short space of time. You've come an incredibly far way. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about your story, where this all started for you? Um, I, I lost my sight in July 2010 after a short illness. You know, it started with the left eye that became blurred. And uh, when I went to see an eye specialist in East London, the Insta Cape, I was told there was an infection and uh, it had already affected even my right eye. So I had to sit with a situation whereby I was told I would eventually lose my sight altogether. But uh, it all came after a month or so. I lost it completely and I'm, I'm completely blind as we speak now. It must have been rather frightening at the time when, you, when it started, when they said well, you have an infection in the left eye and you will eventually go blind. It's almost like you're sitting waiting for this hammer to drop on your head. Yeah, there's a lot of disbelief. You think it won't happen to you, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's scary. You, you don't believe it. It's coming. But on a daily basis, you wake up today, you wake up the next day, there's a change in your sight. You don't see the things you would see. You know, I would go and take out my clothing from the wardrobe, but after some days, I could not identify the colors. So I knew, yeah, it is coming. And what happened then? Because you were working, you work for the province, you work for the Eastern Cape Provincial Government, is that correct? Yes, I work for the Rural Development and Agrarian Reform Department there. And what happened when you lost your sight? What happened to your job? I had to, to take up that incapacity leave, you know, and uh, to be on an incapacity leave, it means that you're not capable to perform your work. And here you are, staying at home, worried, crying, almost on a daily basis, alone in the house, locked up, you know, you, you're afraid of burglars. Uh, I had to take that incapacity leave for about six months. And I was tired. I had to go back to work. I wanted to go back to work. I wanted to go back and do something at work. You weren't happy about being called incapable, were you? That's why I remember you when you were talking the other day. You said, I didn't like being told that I was on incapacity leave because I wasn't incapable. Yeah, you, you know your potential, you know your capabilities, and all of a sudden you're told you are, <laughs> <laughs> you are incapable. So I did not like that. And I think that is one other thing that frustrated me more because uh, I still enjoy what I'm doing, you know, working with the private farmers in the, in the, in the town. So I, I still enjoy what I do, but to be said that I'm incapable of working, you know, that frustrated me more. So what happened when you went back? I mean, obviously you couldn't go back to what you were doing exactly. So what did they do initially? And which also I believe was not exactly the right thing for you. Yeah, yeah when I went back to the office, um, I was told that I could not go to my area to work with the farmers. So I was to sit in the office and assist people who might come and, and ask uh, some questions or want to understand the programs of the department. But it was so unfortunate that I found myself uh, isolated in this office where I was, I was placed and uh, it was a bit uh, office far from the, from the rest of my colleagues. So that did not go well with me also. So what did you do? Because by the sounds of it, you're not the type to sit there and just take these things, are you? Yeah, you know, you know, uh, when I, when I started in that office, uh, well, I was I was a bit happy to be back at work to start off with, but later on, not much people would come to ask questions, so you'd find yourself sitting there and without anything to do. So I asked my supervisor if I could go back to my area and probably have someone to assist me with identifying things, you know, that would need a sighted person. But with the, with the kind of advice I had to give farmers, I still have that ability. I know I can still do it. And the one thing that, that really touched me that you said when you were doing that chat at the LOFOB 80th anniversary celebrations was you said, I might have lost my sight, but I haven't lost my vision. Yes. 
And that is that is a problem that most people who lose their sight think of that uh, it's the end of life. It is not. When you lose your sight, it's only that you cannot see the objects around you, but you still have a vision. There is still life out there. You know, there is still a lot of other things people can engage engage themselves in and, and, and begin to do. And you can still excel in most areas, even where other sighted people cannot uh, perform so well. But as a blind person or a visually impaired person, there's a lot out there that people can still do. It's not the end of life. It's just that you have lost your sight and not your vision. So people should not let their dreams go into the grave with them. They should not die with their dreams, but they can still pursue their goals and, and achieve more even if they are still blind. So how did you find out about LOFOB? How did this all come about that you're now in Cape Town? A colleague of mine who is partially sighted uh, phoned me and told me about LOFOB. And uh, that is when I started phoning LOFOB. And uh, I, I met uh, Chantel, who is uh, the so social worker there. And uh, that is where we started engaging each other. And uh, I came here last year, 2012, September 17, 18 and 19th for my three-day assessment. That is to understand what type of training I might need to go through, you know, such as the orientation and mobility training, you know, and uh, the cooking and everything that I had to do. So last year I came here in September, I did the training and uh, I was taken for, for, for three months this year. So you came back to Cape Town in January? I came back in January when they opened on the 7th of January. That's when I started. So do you stay, do they have hostel facilities here? Where do the, you stay while you're here? They have hostel facilities. They have hostel facilities, they provide meals and uh, it's, it's, it's more organized for the blind people. It's more secured and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very nice environment. So you, you're going to be here for about three months. And what, yes. are you, what are the, some of the courses that you're doing? What are some of the things that you're training, being trained to do while you're here? I've mentioned the orientation and mobility training where you must know your environment because you are not always with your instructor. And uh, you must know how to cross the streets. When, when I, I can move around Grassy Park now freely. I use my cane to, to move, to cross the robots, how to cross the robots, how to cross the streets, how to identify uh, doors and, and the stairs and, 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 and stuff. But uh, there is also another, another course that they do. It's an eight-week uh, course where you come to meet with other blind people. They say it's, 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 you, you are brought into an adjustment group where other blind people share your stories, you know, and when you listen to those people, you, you, it is then that you find that you're not the only one who's been through such a grief of, lo of losing sight, but uh, you, you happen to, to, to meet people who share the same story as yours. It's almost identical stories that people, blind people go through when you start to lose your sight. And that is when now you can always build your morale, you can build your confidence in terms of saying, well, it's not the end of the world, I must look forward and live my life to the full. But that's one of the things I think it, it is a grieving process because you've lost something. It, it's people need to understand that it's not mm. just, well, you know, mm. you've lost your sight and now yes. you just have to get on. It is actually go through a grieving process. Yes. And I'm sure for a long time, you almost think that you're the only one that's had this particular type of experience. Yes. No, you, you see, when you lose your sight, there's a lot of questions you ask yourself, especially when you, you are in your 40s. All of a sudden, you just lose your sight. I lost my sight at 43. Now, I was asking a lot of questions to my God. Why, Father? Why me at this time? You know, I'm raising kids here. And uh, why, how, how am I going to cope with all this, with this condition now, being totally blind? But, uh, you know, it's like, it's like really, it's like you've been sentenced to life when you lose your sight until you realize that you must get yourself out of this cocoon, get yourself and, and, and pick up yourself, you know, and, and not quit in life because it's just that you've lost your sight. You've got everything within you, you know, and uh, I'm a strong believer in Christ. So that also helped me so much. And what about family support? My family is very supporting. Uh, I, I, I don't have a problem. My, my two sisters, my father, everyone around me, they support me so well. 
That's a, that, that goes a long way to helping you to come to the point where you are now, because I think if you didn't have that support, it would be a lot more difficult. Yes, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here with, without that support, because now I know even if I'm away from home, my kids are looked after, my house, everything around there is taken care of because I've got all the support I need, even from my People from my church, they are supporting me so well. Even my they, with transporting the kids to hostel and back, you know, they do that on a, on a weekly basis. Now, we mentioned some of the courses. You mentioned earlier that you also learn how to cook. Are you going to be the chef now? <laughs> I'm becoming a master chef. You want to do this. <laughs> you give me I'm some be- pointers here before you go. <laughs> Yo, I'm becoming a master chef. Uh, last week I did uh, pasta and uh, some mince. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, it was a nice dish that I cooked. Did you cook so well before? Yes, I enjoyed oh, cooking okay, before. So this isn't I enjoyed anything cooking. New. So yeah, it, it's just that the safety tips around mm. the kitchen, how to 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 do your fried chicken, to to deal with hot oil, you know, on the stove, how to bake things around the kitchen. More, it's it's the safety tips, you know, and some of the other things, you know, when you cite it, you, you just do things without thinking if, about without them. thinking mm. about them, you know, how to peel an onion. You, it's, you don't have to think about such things, but when you're blind. You know, there is a technique that you have to use and easy to follow the stuff <laughs> that you have to use, you know, and uh, and and how to, to be careful not to bump things all over the kitchen and and break your dishes and your glasses, you know, how, how to move your hands also within the kitchen. What happens when you go back to work now? When I go back to work, I, I'm hoping to do a computer course. And uh, I, I think I'll be more capable now than before because I can use my cane so well now. But also I'll need someone to help me with the, within my area of work because I'll still be visiting farmers, but I still want to advance my studies. Now, what happens when you leave? Now, with LOFOB, do they follow up? Do they give you any sort of help once you go, once you've left LOFOB here in Cape Town? Yes, they do. They do follow you up. They do. They would want to know how you're doing and uh, if you have any problems. I, I think they can even send someone down to the Eastern Cape to go and assist me with that environment there. Okay, so it's not just a case of training you now and then throwing you out you they they do sort of make quite sure that you've settled once you've left yeah i think i think low fob is is, is, a, is such a, a good center uh, to 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 integrate the blind people back into society after i leave here i know i'll be all i'll always be in contact with them i'll always be in touch with them they will always phone me i know chantelle and abigail will always call me to find out as to how am i doing and uh, if I have any problems around the other societies for the blind or people that I may contact because they know at least some people around the Eastern Cape. Now you were very lucky that you knew somebody that knew about LOFOB because LOFOB is based, the League of Friends of the Blind is based here in Cape Town. Yes. And But they do take referrals from all over the country. And I, the problem, I think, is that a lot of people out there aren't aware of the amazing work that LOFOB actually does here in Cape Town. Exactly. And that they can, as you said, there's a hostel, you can come and stay here. You are very lucky that you knew somebody that could actually point you in the right direction. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's shocking to find that even even around Cape Town, you know, there are people who still do not know about LOFOB. But uh, I know there are awareness programs that they're engaging themselves into, like uh, going to the community radio stations and, 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 and just letting people know what LOFOB is doing. But yeah, within the Eastern Cape, you, a lot of people are blind and I don't think they are all aware of what LOFOB is doing. And I would wish that people could uh, just call in there and find out more about the programs of LOFOP and what LOFOP can, can, can do to help them. Because, yeah, as a, as a blind person, you need to go through the, some kind of a training. And uh, it's, 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 not an end, it's not the end of your life, really. It's just that you've lost your sight. It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning altogether. With Braille, you you like you are doing sub A when you when you begin <laughs> Braille. You know, you don't do your A B C as as a sighted person. You you work with dots. And how's so, that going? Are you are you managing that? I'm doing book four already. Oh wow, I've, well I've done. done book four already. That's uh, out of the five books, yeah. In in in, in hardly two months, you know, so I've been pushing myself and uh, it, it, it's the determination, you know, and what I want to achieve at the end, you know, because if you if you determine and you know your goals, you know, you know what you want to achieve, nothing can stop you.
Were you supposed to be here till April and you said that you're pushing to go back home in the middle of March. They're missing the family. It's, it's giving you a good incentive to get there faster. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll be starting with my last volume now this week. So I'm, I'm much more advanced now in Braille. <laughs> and are you going back home to the Eastern Cape as an ambassador for LoFob almost to talk about it and tell people about what the work that they do here? I didn't know that you had a mind reader. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I want to sell Lofop. Uh, I would speak to the manager there, Arman Pam. I want to sell Lofop in the, within even within the Eastern Cape. I also want to be involved in their programs. I know there's a Party's Day, Blind mm. Party's Day on the 31st of May. I, I'm surely going to come back here and be part of what the, uh, of what Lofop is doing. We're going to see you in Cape Town quite a lot by the sounds of it. Yes, yes. I want to. I want to visit Cape Town. I want to be an ambassador there. I want to to visit your sister radio stations there. And just speak about the blind people and and, and what LOFOB can do in Cape Town. Where would you have been today if you hadn't come to LOFOB? I don't know. Uh, I, I must have been somewhere in one of the farms <laughs> where I work in, in the Eastern Cape. But um, a frustrated man maybe could have, my grief could have taken more, you know, than, than what I am today, you know, because... You, you you tend to be frustrated. You, you, there's times when you have to submit your monthly reports, you know. You cannot even make notes of your own. You know, when you have to submit your monthly reports at work, you have to wait for everybody to finish doing their reports now and you ask this person to do your report. You know that. But, uh, yeah, this thing of not having your privacy in, in almost everything that you do, mm. that someone else has to know, you know, it frustrates now with with me being independent and being able to do my stuff. I, I, I don't know. The sky is the limit. And now if you're going to be doing the computer course, you can do your own reports. I can do my own reports. <laughs> I've asked for a program, a software program where I can just talk and the mm. computer will just type my report and then I can just print it. Well, you sound like you're on a good road here and it sounds like you've achieved a lot in a very short space of time. Well done. I, I'm, I'm very, very impressed by what you've done and about what you, the way you can talk about your situation. And I think what you are saying this evening, you give a lot of hope to people out there that, as you said, it's not the end. No, it's not the end. People must realize that you can still go and do things that nobody ever thought you could do. You know, you, you can still achieve more. You can go and further your studies. There are universities where you can do your studies in Braille and become what you want to become. It's not the end of the world, really. Polani Zia, you have been an absolute inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. And I wish you much success and hopefully we'll see a lot more of you here in Cape Town in the not too distant future. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, and thank you to the listeners too. I was talking to Mr. Polani Zia and we were talking about LOFOB, the League of Friends of the Blind. And if you'd like to get in touch with them, they have a website. It's www.lofob.org.za. LOFOB is L O. FOB, lofob.org.za, or you can call them here in Cape Town on 021 705 3753. 021 705 3753. The Disability Report with Karen Key. Joining me is Cassie Chambers, and she's the operations director for SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. I think one thing, as far as statistics go, that people possibly might not be aware of is that more than 4 million South Africans have bipolar disorder. And, and as your website will tell you, that many more may not even be aware that they have it. And I think there's the, the key thing is that so many people don't even know that they do have it or that there is help or treatment for it. They feel like that's part of their personality, that they just have to cope with it. Many families will say, well, this is just the way that they are. But they don't realize that having that spiraling out of control, those crises, that, that instability, um, there is help available. And I think it's so important. The stats that we do have out there, like you say, over 4 million, it's still so underreported. So many people have not come forward yet to get help or don't even know where to go to get help. So just you mentioned the mood sort of mood swings or that that's very indicative of, of bipolar, but there's the highs and the lows, but they're significant. It's not just like you and I having a bad day. And it's not 
just a, a simple mood swing. It's, it's definitely more than that. It's a mm. dramatic shift in the extreme. So you, when you're sad, you're extremely sad. When you're happy or high, you're extremely happy or high. You're ecstatic and on top of the world. So you have these different moods that you go through. And, of course, everyone has throughout their day, they'll have different triggers. If something sad happens, you're sad. But with bipolar disorder, it's the absolute extreme of them. And they also start to impair your daily functioning. So it starts to affect your relationships, your work, your performance. Um, and that's where it starts to become a problem. And that's why we do encourage people. You know, you can lead a very high-functioning, successful life. There are so many South Africans living with bipolar disorder. And it's just so important to know what treatment you can go on to and who to speak to. We actually have a dedicated bipolar helpline, which is open every single day of the year from 8 in the morning till 8 at night. And people can call us toll free on 0800 70 80 90. If people are possibly thinking maybe this sounds like me and they haven't sort of maybe I put this down to a personality thing, as you said in the beginning, but you are, are concerned. There's no harm in going to chat. Would you chat to your GP? Who would you go and chat to about this? What you can do to start off, we actually have a mood questionnaire on our website, appsadog.org, and you can actually fill in and see if it is something that is a, a real concern or where to go to. Speak to your GP, speak to a counsellor at SADAG, and let's figure out what is going on, what are the triggers, how long have you had it for, and then we can refer you on to the correct place. But if you are concerned, speak to your GP. They are able to help you, at least with the treatment and where to go. Um, so it's very important that you get that help and speak to someone before it's too late. Something like this, Cassie, usually typically begins in adolescence mm-hmm. and then it, or early adulthood. So it's not something that possibly at the age of 50 or 60 we could suddenly develop or could we? You see, it's so difficult, but normally the onset, as you say, is in the early adulthood. Although we have had adults in their 40s or 50 who have their first manic episode. Sometimes you may have had an episode in your teenage years, but you may not have been aware of it. And then you would have had your depressive episodes later on. So it's important not to rule it out. Um, There's always special cases, but normally the age of onset is in early adulthood. So this wouldn't be, what about teenagers? Teenagers, yes. Uh, That's when you can normally see your first episode, and normally then you're able to be diagnosed um, as early adults. But what normally happens with teenagers where the the misdiagnosis comes in is with Often with these mood swings, we we calm it off to, you know, hormones, being a teenager, maybe it's ADHD, maybe it's depression. So it's important that you're working with a professional and preferably a psychiatrist to help you with the proper diagnosis and and the proper assessment of these disorders so you can avoid misdiagnosis and the long haul of, you know, trial and error. Is this something as a parent, if you know that there is bipolar in the family, is this hereditary? Would you then be more aware of it in your children? Should you be looking out for signs? It is hereditary. There is a a genetic component. However, if you yourself or a family member has bipolar, your children are at a higher risk, but it does not mean that they definitely will have bipolar. I think definitely look out for it. See if the warning signs. Become an expert in this illness. Know what are the warning signs, the triggers, know what you're looking out for, and then know where to go to the correct person. Often we have so many patients who call the helpline who have tried for many years to try to get a diagnosis or to figure out what is wrong or what's going on. It's important that you go to a psychiatrist. If you need a name of a psychiatrist or even a psychologist, speak to a counselor at SADAG. What's also important as a parent, if you are suspecting your child or if your child does have bipolar disorder, um, whether they're teenagers or adults, Go to a therapist as well to learn as much as you possibly can and also to have someone answer all of your questions. I think, you know, feeling comfortable and knowing as much as you can is so important in any mental illness. I was chatting there with Cassie Chambers. She's the Operations Director for SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. If you'd like to find out more about bipolar, you can have a look at the website. It's www.sadag.org. You can call their bipolar helpline. They're open from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening, 365 days of the year. The number there, 0800 70 80 90. And that's it for the Disability Report. I'll be back with Health Matters next week, but I'll be back with time to travel tomorrow evening at 9, so join me then. But if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, email me on disability at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Disability on SAFM. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. But right now, it's time for some late night music.